This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome back our returning celebrity guest scorer, comedian, host of Midnight Facts for Insomniacs, just a banger of a title, and friend of the show, Shane Rogers. Oh, thanks, you guys. I'm so happy to be back. This is fun. I think this is number three, isn't it? It is number three. Absolutely. So you got two more for the hat. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yes, and I know you have at least one more planned before, I think, next month, if I remember right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we're we're coming back. Uh, we're gonna do this all again. Yeah, except that one we're throwing in an extra wrench, and we have my mother on. That's right. I'm excited for that. I have to get to meet the whole family. So tonight, for our 176th episode, we discuss the original comic book movie with Superman the Movie from 1978, directed by Richard Donner, screenplay by Mario Puzo, David and Leslie Newman, and Robert Benton, music by John Williams. Starring Christopher Reeve as Superman slash Clark Kent, Jeff East as the teenage Clark Kent, Marlon Brando as Jor-El, Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor, Ned Beatty as Otis, Jackie Cooper as Perry White, Glenn Ford as Jonathan Kent, Margot Kidder as Lois Lane, Valerie Perrine as Eve Tessmacher, Terrence Stamp as General Zod, Phyllis Thaxter as Martha Kent, Susanna York as Lara, and Mark McClure as Jimmy Olsen. Recognition for this movie? Superman the movie was wide released on December 15th, 1978. Despite only having 16 days open in 1978, the film would become the 12th highest grossing film of 1978 and would go on to be the top grossing film of 1979. On a budget of roughly $55 million, Superman is said to have grossed over $300 million at the box office during its run. The film became the sixth highest grossing film of all time after its theatrical run, and it was also Warner Brothers' most successful film at the time. It received praise for Reeves' performance and John Williams' musical score, and was nominated for three Academy Awards, including Best Film Editing, Best Musical Original Score, and Best Sound, and it received a Special Achievement Academy Award for Visual Effects. In addition, Williams was nominated at the 36th Golden Globe Awards and won the Grammy Award for Best Score Soundtrack for Visual Media. Groundbreaking in its use of special effects and science fiction slash fantasy storytelling, the film's legacy presaged the mainstream popularity of Hollywood's superhero film franchises. In 2017, Superman was selected for preservation by the National Film Registry, Can either of you name the other film that uh, is currently in the National Film Registry as a superhero film? There are only two. Oh, wow. Uh, Dad should know this one. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of stumped. I mean, it wasn't, it probably wasn't the 89 Batman. I can't think of. uh, Since we just covered it and it's the current number one on the list, The Dark Knight is the other. Oh, okay. Wow. And then tracks, I guess. I was going to say the uh, Adam West Batman movie. <laughs> no. Oh, really? Bang. Kapow. Uh, the bat shark repellent still gets me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Superman the movie currently holds a 94% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, an 82 score on Metacritic, and a 3.7 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So, as we do every week, Dad, what is your relationship to this movie? I'm pretty sure I was in junior high school or, like, freshman year of high school, and I had, uh, I went to see this at the theater. I'm pretty sure I did. Um, This was a big deal among my age group at that time, and so I think that's what I did. And if I hadn't, I'd at least seen it a couple of times on HBO since, but I'm pretty sure it was at the theater. And Shane, you had said that this might have been just a little too soon for you? Yeah, I did not see the the first one in the theater. I did see part two, and I saw part three in the theater, and thankfully not four. But yeah, this movie for me was just warm, fuzzy nostalgia, I think. Uh, this was a movie that was really formative for me when I was a kid. It Christopher Reeve was the super the superhero of my childhood still probably the only person that i can and we'll get to this later i know but probably the only person that i can think of as superman um i think some other people have done an admirable job with what they were given but you know you just you can't supplant that kind of uh icon in and to me this really this movie was uh revelatory it just kind of summed up the everything that I had wanted from a superhero is what I got. You know, I was a big comic books fan when I was a little kid. And then seeing, you know, Superman was uh, the embodiment of everything from the comic books coming from the page and like actually coming to the screen. And it felt completely real to me and it felt authentic. And I just I don't think I knew that Christopher Reeve wasn't Superman until he got hurt. Like, I think up until then, he just was Superman in my head. And uh, so I have just nothing but wonderful, warm, warm, fuzzy, nostalgic memories of this movie. I came to this much later than I did some other superhero films. I think this was something I probably watched when I was in high school. I think notably, I probably watched this after the Spider-Man films came out and some of the early X-Men films. Definitely after most of the Batman films that were like as I was a kid. Yeah, like the Schumacher Batmans were the ones that I first remember as like superhero films coming out. Not that that's a great thing, because I don't care for either of them. I think they're total schlock, but that's beside the point entirely. Most of my formative experience with Superman was actually from a cartoon standpoint. So watching the old Super Friends cartoons in the late 90s on either Cartoon Network or Boomerang, or watching the new adventures of Superman voiced by Tim Daly in like the late 90s, after they'd done the Batman run in the mid-90s. So I think... My association to superheroes has primarily been through the lens of Batman because that was what the most popular thing was at the time. I know a lot of kids really grew up on Spider-Man from either the cartoon version in the 90s and then obviously the Tobey Maguire movies, but I was always more of a DC guy. I've been kind of a diehard in hoping that they will eventually right the ship because obviously we've seen how good a Batman franchise can be when done correctly but you need the right voices. I am very curious to see how they will kind of restart this new era of DC Comics and DC Comics movies with James Gunn, notably from the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise, doing his version of a superhero film, because I love that we finally put a comic enthusiast in charge 
to really kind of bring back some of the joy that's been missing from a lot of this stuff in recent years. And so I'm curious to see how he's going to do that. But I do appreciate that for a lot of people, I think Christopher Reeve is like what Sean Connery is to the Bond franchise. He's the original. He kind of establishes and puts the marker down. And he's so closely associated with what it is this character is. It's going to be hard for anyone else unless they're just truly different to reestablish themselves as the new version, even though I really loved Henry Cavill as Superman. Yeah, that was interesting. I agree with a lot of what you said. I feel like the the sort of dourness that has infected DC really, you know, if you look at the Marvel franchise and how how successful they've been, you know, they're taking their cues more from this original Superman franchise than they are from, you know, the even the even the Nolan Batman you know, Nolan set this tone that was dark and edgy and but he got it right because that's what Batman needed. But he also made it fun and entertaining and interesting. And I, I feel like DC moved away from that. And they they just all they took from from Nolan was the the darkness and the grimness. And they forgot about the fun of of superheroes and, and comic books. And this movie has the fun, you know, this movie gets it. And, and I think Marvel took their cues from Superman as opposed to Batman. And I think that's why they've been as successful as they were. It, we'll get into it more, but yeah, that was interesting to me. It's very odd that Hollywood would take the wrong lessons from successful film franchises, given that we're now, after Barbie, going to get 20 other Mattel products as films, like Hot Wheels and Polly Pocket. Oh, God. <laughs> well, let me just say, though, my generation, Christopher Reeve was not, Reeves was not the first because I grew up watching the old serials. It was the TV show from the late 50s, early 60s with George Reeve as Superman. So that's who I remembered. So it's not really as big a deal for me. And as far as you're talking about how things will be now that there's a change in DC, I hope you're not setting yourself up for failure because I don't always have the greatest faith in people who uh, supposedly are comic book guys to get things right. I think that's fair. But given that Superman is supposed to be a symbol of hope, I'm going to be very hopeful as to what it could be, as opposed to trying to go in with a note of cynicism at the outset and hoping that they kind of turn me around. Because I'm always hopeful that there's going to be good movies, period let alone just comic book movies. But I, I think a lot of what's been missing for the Superman character, they've actually, oddly enough, gotten right on TV, although the longer it's gone on, it's usually kind of faded. But I think like Smallville is a great example of how to do Superman well, because we often get the association that Superman's true weakness is kryptonite, and it's not, at least in my opinion. It's his caringness towards mankind. Yeah, it's emotion. He always is going to want to save everyone, and then he's also going to really want to save Lois. And that is kind of borne out in this movie, that the kryptonite only stops him so much, but what really sets him off is is that he can't save everybody. Yeah. And again, they've and they've kept that lightheartedness in the TV versions, whereas again, they've tried to go dark I just, it's crazy to me to have a, you know, Man of Steel. I, I know a lot of people love it. I, I just think it's, abs I could, I hated that movie, hated it. 
And it's not Cavill's fault. I love Cavill. I think he did a great job. I, I would like him as Superman if he were given something that I could watch. But to make Superman a mopey bastard is just the worst thing you can do. I hated it. I hated everything about it. I want to see Superman be charming and smile. And, you know, Christopher Reeve is just charisma. And Cavill has that charisma and they didn't use it. They gave him to me just trash. And that's and, and you know, even I'm not a big Dean Kane fan, but I think he did a great job of being charming and being likable. And you have to be a likable Superman. Well, and it goes to the origin point of the character. I can't remember if it was Joe Schuster or Jerry Siegel. I want to say it was Jerry Siegel's dad is the starting point for this whole th- series because his dad was held up at gunpoint and ended up dying as a result of being mugged in his, like, I want to say a liquor store in like Cleveland. And so he created this character out of his own grief that was impervious to bullets that could save everybody and be the symbol that nobody else had in the world. Something of just pure goodness and character that we needed. So often the blue boy scout, I think has been thrown around quite a bit. And that's why people say that, He's kind of an uninteresting character because he's just way too moralistic and he's impervious. But I think that's kind of shortchanging the character if you don't have some of the moral dilemmas that he's often put through. And that's why I'm, I mean, as much as I love Gene Hackman as a character actor, and trust me, we've given enough praise on this show for Gene Hackman and other roles. This Lex Luthor is so one note for me as far as how the character is drawn. And it just, it doesn't serve what that character could be. So even from the standpoint, if you don't even create a marginal Superman, if you just have a decent Lex Luthor for once, I think even that would be redeeming for me. Yeah, it is interesting that this is a movie that doesn't have a compelling villain and kind of doesn't care about the villain. Like the villain, you know, the villain would become so important in later superhero movies and in this one, it's he's an afterthought. He's a foil. He just is there so that Superman has something to do. And we'll get it. We'll get into all of this. But yeah, I completely agree. And I think that the idea of Superman being boring and imp- because he's impervious, that is what Christopher Reeve brought to this character was a, a vulnerability. There is he he is strong. He does feel powerful. But there is a vulnerability to Christopher Reeve that he brought to the character that, you know, and especially you know that he is emotionally vulnerable and he does struggle with his powers and how to use them. And just Christopher Reeve brought that nuance and that complexity that you need in Superman because otherwise he is completely one note. He does become a a Lex Luthor. I will comment, though, about Gene Hackman's performance. He did achieve something really significant. He was able to draw the character flatter than it was in the comic book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there, there is. It is. I wonder how much of that Mario Puzo. You know, it is interesting when you have a guy who wrote a book about antiheroes and, you know, villains, basically, who are also still very complex and likable in so many ways and tangible and then it's very strange for him to take a villain and just make it completely one note like that. So given that I think we spent the better part of July basically discussing the nature of superhero films, I've been doing this series with another friend of our show, 
on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so I think a lot of this over the course of 2023 has been about where the current media or movie landscape has been in recent years due to the superhero films. And you see something new every week. I think there was a controversy earlier this week because I think it's Adam Devine made one comment that Marvel is responsible for basically killing the studio comedy because they're having to build too much on these tent poles. And if they don't work, then there's no money left for the mid-budget film. So you've created all of these excuses built upon it. But there's, whether it's Martin Scorsese making a comment about Marvel films, or obviously Christopher Nolan is still back in the news with Oppenheimer being as big as it is, but the new stuff this year as opposed to sequels, how responsible is this movie that, kind of started it's the original comic book movie i mean i guess batman from 1966 but that was more of just a byproduct or a spin-off of the tv show but how much is this movie kind of responsible for where we are culturally right now at least as far as cinema <laughs> it's not like hollywood actually leads anybody any place it's not like they create something and then get everybody to join in they're just following and if there's a problem with the fact that Marvel is dominated or that they've created all these things and driven out, it's on us, the viewing public, not on the studios. They're just trying to make a buck and they're going to go the direction they want uh, or they think is going to result in money being made. And so I don't know if this has really had anything major other than the fact that it did very well for what really is and we'll get into that when we start scoring, I think a very mediocre film. Now, when I saw this originally, I remember thinking this was a better film than it was. Then I watched it again, and I hadn't seen it in probably 20 years. It's mediocre at best. Well, I think part of that has to be because you've seen a lot of other films that comparatively, obviously, this has become somewhat dated. And so I think that does factor eventually into what we will deem as classicness comparatively, because even 1989's Batman makes leaps and bounds comparative to what the action sequences and what you can do for visual effects and such. But this was groundbreaking in 1978. It looks a lot like kind of how Star Wars was in 1977. But Star Wars, the original, looks kind of dated compared to some of the modern Star Wars stuff and what they can do with that. And I think it's, uh, I think that's, I would disagree. I don't think it's a mediocre film, but I, I definitely understand where you're coming from. I see why a lot of people would. There are parts of it that definitely don't hold up anymore and are kind of eye rolling. And there's a lot of it that that is just, you know, for its time though, it was, I think, a pretty great movie. And I think a lot of it for me still holds up. And I, I understand where other people would disagree. I do think it, it it is analogous to Star Wars in some ways in that the first one, to me, I, I don't even like watching the original Star Wars. I love uh, Empire Strikes Back. It's just like once you hit the, the middle movie of the franchise, like they find their stride. And we were talking about this a little bit actually before we started rolling that, you know, to me, Superman 2 is just a far superior movie. It, I, I really love Superman 2. But I think that you need the first movie to set the foundation. And I think it, it this is the movie that, this is the Superman movie that the 1970s needed. It was the movie that set the franchise. It was close enough to sort of what was coming out at the time to make it palatable. You know, you couldn't just throw a, some type of Marvel movie and they didn't have the ability, obviously, to do it. And, and I think we forget in some ways how groundbreaking the effects were at the time, too. I mean, 
I, I do remember the tagline of, you know, you you'll believe a man can fly that and them delivering on that was huge. Like that was just it, it was kind of awe inspiring at the time. And I think in, in retrospect, it's easy to look at it through the lens of now, especially with the Marvel franchises and be like, that is a really just weak superhero movie. But, you know, for what they could do at the time, I think it was pretty amazing. And to me, it's it still does hold up. And I, I think that what this movie did more than anything was it taught the importance of casting for a superhero film. Because without Christopher Reeve, this movie is uh, almost unwatchable if you put someone, you know, if you put <laughs> Nicolas Cage or something, you know, I mean, he wasn't available at the time. But, you know, if you put the wrong, <laughs> we, we know that Nicolas Cage was up for Superman at some point. And if you put the wrong character, the wrong actor in this role, any other, any actor almost other than, and I, I watched a behind the scenes on it last night, Dick Donner was talking about that. He was like, there's just not another actor that he could imagine then or could imagine since that could have played the role the way Reeve did. So I think, you know, Marvel has taken that cue. They understand. And it's certainly the 1989 Batman, I mean, getting the right person in that role is you, you make something iconic and you make, you can build a franchise on that. And I think that that's the legacy that this movie had was, was showing the importance of getting the right person in the right role and, and identifying, making that person so identifiable. You have, you know, Robert Downey Jr. now is Iron Man to most people. Like you talk about Robert Downey Jr. You can talk about, you know, Chaplin and his other roles. No one cares. Everyone who was born after, you know, the eighties, he is, he is Iron Man and Reeve is Superman and Hemsworth is Thor and making those Evans and, and, you know, Captain America, getting the right person in the right role. You just cement that in, in the minds of the public. And I think that that's the legacy that this movie had. It just made that, it made that really clear and some smart directors and some smart producers took the right cues from that. Well, dad, you want to get into the background of the film? Do you have our plot summary ready for us? Yes. Superman follows the legendary tale of the Man of Steel's journey from the distant planet Krypton to become Earth's greatest protector. The film begins with the destruction of Krypton, where Jor-El, a scientist, sends his infant son, Kal-El, to Earth in a small spaceship to escape the planet's demise. Kal-El crash lands in Smallville, Kansas, and is found and raised by the Kent family. As he grows up, Kal-El, now named Clark Kent, discovers his incredible superhuman abilities, which include super strength, flight, and heat vision. Following the guidance of his adoptive parents, Jonathan and Martha Kent, Clark learns to conceal his power while developing a strong sense of moral responsibility. Upon reaching adulthood, Clark decides to move to Metropolis and takes on the role of a mild-mannered reporter at the Daily Planet. At the newspaper, he forms a connection with the fearless journalist Lois Lane and butts heads with the tough-talking editor Perry White. Meanwhile, criminal mastermind Lex Luthor is plotting a nefarious plan to create an earthquake that will allow him to gain control over valuable land. Superman must use his powers to thwart Luthor's scheme, rescuing Lois and preventing widespread devastation. Throughout his heroic efforts, Superman captures the admiration and adoration of the public, becoming a symbol of hope and justice. Thank you. Did you know 
To obtain the musculature to convincingly play Superman, Christopher Reeve underwent a bodybuilding regime supervised by David Prowse, the man who played Darth Vader in the original Star Wars trilogy. Did you know? According to Sir Roger Moore's autobiography, he witnessed Christopher Reeve walking through the canteen at Pinewood Studios in full Superman costume, oblivious to the swooning female admirers he left in his wake. When he did the same thing dressed as Clark Kent, no one paid any attention. Very interestingly, something similar happened with Harold Lloyd. When he wasn't filming movies and removed his iconic round glasses, nobody paid attention to him at the point that no one recognized him as the famous actor he was. Lloyd was inspiration for Superman alter-ego Clark Kent, especially in the detail of the glasses to hide himself of the public eye in his civilian identity. Did you know? Richard Donner was disgusted that production designer John Barry and cinematographer Jeffrey Unsworth received no recognition from the Academy for their work on this film. He was particularly aggrieved that one of the nominees for Best Art Direction was California Suite, which merely duplicated an existing hotel, while Barry created an entire fictional city and a fortress in the Arctic. Did you know? To maintain on-screen continuity, Christopher Reeve dubbed all of Jeff East's dialogue as young Clark Kent. East's voice is never heard during the film. Did you know? Initially, Gene Hackman refused to cut off his mustache to play Lex Luthor. In early one-sheets of the film, his face is featured with a mustache. Before Richard Donner and Gene Hackman met face-to-face, Donner proposed to Hackman that if he would cut his mustache, Donner would cut his too, and Hackman agreed. It turned out later that Donner did not have a mustache at all. He wore a false mustache that he peeled off at the last moment. That's just, that's great. That's that's like one of those trolling tactics that you'd do, Pop. Yeah. Yeah, he told that story on the behind the scenes that I watched last night. It was good. So with that, we'll take our first break and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week for our 177th episode, we discuss the U.S. space program biopic, The Right Stuff from 1983, celebrating its 30th birthday this year. Written and directed by Philip Kaufman, co-written by Tom Wolfe, music by Bill Conti, starring Sam Shepard, Scott Glenn, Ed Harris, Dennis Quaid, and Fred Ward. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. All right, so best performance is up first. I think there's an obvious choice, and I did not go with it. So I'll let you guys start. Dad, did you have Christopher Reeve? Yes, I did. I mean, he carries the movie. There was a, There's a sweetness about his performance, a sincerity, but yet an edge, a toughness about him that he's willing to stand up. He really did do a great job. Yeah, I'm I'm going to be 100% basic on these. And yeah, Chris, I mean, I, Christopher Reed for sure. Okay, so he's my best secondary. And part of it has to do with creating the tonal shift in what the movie was, which I think is created primarily by the score. I highlighted that on this rewatch. I went with John Williams. If you're thinking of Christopher Reeve, part of it has to do with the kind of fanfare trumpeting that comes from the score. The dun 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 dun. 
I think it creates an aura. It's much in the same way that like Indiana Jones, because it's so synonymous with the character that that's their introduction or that's their music that plays every time that they're on screen. But it's majestic to me in a way that I don't think any of the other subsequent Supermans have really had the same quality to them. They don't have that certain fanfare, that majestic or royal quality, but that also seems hopeful and proud and encouraging, bright, that kind of backs them up and creates kind of the characteristics of the character without him having to do anything visually, even though that's there. So I think in a way that it's kind of two parts of the same whole for me. That's why I went Reeve number two, but I think the score sets the tone for the entirety of the film where Christopher Reeve's only in it for, I think, the second half of the film. I mean, there's so much that's happening before he's ever on screen even. Yeah, the uh, the score is amazing. And it really, I, I think, as iconic as Superman is, the score is iconic as well. And it does have that sense, almost like Star Wars again, where, you know, Vader is the Imperial March, right? Like Superman is that fanfare when they talked about it in the documentary I watched where, you know, as soon as he starts to pull open his shirt, there would be like a three note kind of teaser of that. And then when he would do the, you know, revolving door thing or go in a, you know, wherever he made his change, then he would come out and it would be the full fanfare. And it's just, you immediately associate that's Pavlovian, right? We just immediately associate that with like grandeur and the optimism and brightness. It's just such a perfect freaking score. And John Williams talked about it on that and said that, you know, he had really tried hard to not make it. He wanted to make it grandiose, but not take itself too seriously. And and that really fits the tone of the movie, which is, you know, not taking itself too seriously, but still being fun and inspiring. And it, I think he just nailed it. So as I said, my best secondary is Christopher Reeve. I'll just piggyback everything that you guys have said. I thought he got the tone of the character right, because it would be easy to be all powerful and to just play it as impervious. But I thought that if you're going to get Superman right, you have to get the vulnerability down and you have to get the empathy down correctly. And I thought he he displayed both of those and has become the template for everybody that's come after him, which is part of the reason why I think he will always be, at least for most people, their Superman. Although I, I do think that there's a modern version that does not know him given that his accident kind of took him out of commission for at least the cultural version of him for most people that are probably younger than myself. Yeah. I was talking to a younger friend a couple of days ago at work and, you know, she, she I was talking about this podcast and, and Superman and for her, she doesn't really have a Superman. I think she's just not a comic book person. But when I brought up Christopher Reeve, she literally said, Oh, the guy in the wheelchair. And you know, that was just heartbreaking for me to have that be someone's only real connection to Christopher Reeve was like, Oh, the, the tragedy. And so that is sad. And I do think, you know, all of this depends on your era and your, what your connection is to that specific, your demographic too, and, and what you were into at those specific times. But yeah, my second secondary performance I, you know, on this rewatch, I don't think I'd appreciated her as much in the past. And I thought Margot Kidder was like, 
the sort of sassiness that she brings to it and being a flawed character in a lot of ways she can't spell she's very she's like a work uh she's you know clearly a, a work addict she's not particularly nice to everyone she kind of is dismissive to a lot of people because she's just so in her own head but you can but she has a sense of humor and I really thought that she kind of shined in this viewing for me. And I do think that they have a chemistry that I wasn't as aware of when I was younger. And it's interesting to see some of the behind the scenes stuff and how they sort of struggled with each other because he was taking it very seriously and was, you know, so invested in this film and like making, he felt such a weight of responsibility to portray this character correctly. And Margot Kidder was trying to like have a good time with this thing because it was very difficult filming all these scenes and she would make jokes and stuff and he just was not having it. And so it's interesting that behind the scenes, I think they they loved each other in a lot of ways and had a connection throughout their lives, but there was also some tension there. And I think maybe that actually contributed to their on-screen dynamic. So I thought Margot Kidder actually in in this viewing to me was probably the only other character that truly stands out. Dead? John Williams. Yeah. That's fair. That's where I went with it and for the reasons you provided because I think that after Reeve, he has the most uh, impact on the film. And I definitely thought about going with him for charismatic, but I thought it would have probably undercut what I really thought of the score and how important it is to setting the tone of the film. I ultimately went charismatic with Richard Donner, just creating the atmosphere of the movie, kind of doing this dance between being too comical and too offbeat while also appreciating that there were going to be the comic book fans that were probably never going to forgive him if it just becomes a joke a minute type thing and it's it's kind of a slapstick comedy. So comparatively, I, I would put it in a, a similar tone as the 66 Batman, but not quite as goofy, which I think that was intentionally goofy. This is a little bit more self-serious and trying to get the comic book lore correct, although I, I do think there are places where they obviously differed from the accuracy of the, the legend of Superman, as has been kind of recreated multiple times. But even so, you've got at least a decent enough background and knowing who this character is for what they chose. Maybe some of that is due to the script, but I do think that he had to have a outsized effect on corralling, you know, you have to be able to transition from the destruction of a home world, but not feel that it's that by itself is too important. And then you have to get his home life and his upbringing while also being able to deftly transition into the parts that you probably really want. So you have to go through all three of these parts and they have to somehow aid this character into what he becomes. And I do think it is telling, and we kind of brushed past it a little bit, but that Kevin Feige has specifically said, the head of Marvel, how much this film influenced him in trying to help make X-Men and then eventually what they did with the Marvel Cinematic Universe eventually in how you tell an origin story. And I do think that that has a contribution overall to kind of how origin stories have been done since then. That is interesting. I, I wish I'd thought of that, actually. That's a 
really good choice. He's also a very charismatic person. Like if you've seen him in, in these behind the scenes things, it seems like he was just a presence on and everybody loved him. I mean, he just, and he, you know, Margot Kidder said that he would direct everyone differently. He knew instinctively how an actor needed to be directed and he would give them that. And so, you know, he was more firm with some of them and he was more playful with some of them. And he just seems like a real master. There were gutsy decisions. You know, the fact that Superman doesn't show up until I think it's like an hour and 14 minutes into the movie could have like hugely backfired and still is a little frustrating when I watch it today. I'm just like, you know, it's the Jurassic Park. Like, are there any dinosaurs on your dinosaur tour? You know, where is there a Superman eventually coming into this movie? But then that makes it so impactful when he finally shows up. And I think Donner just made some decisions that, you know, some of them didn't work for me. I really hate the like flying romance poem that she like reads in, in her head while they're flying around and is just terrible to me and the, you know, turning the world backwards, which I'm so sure we'll get to. But I think he also, you know, those were the he was willing to swing for the fences. And I think it paid off in a lot of big ways. And honestly, it's the formula for just about every other origin story one way or the other. You're very rarely going to get the on-screen presence right away. I can think of Iron Man. I can think of Batman Begins. I can think of, even to a degree, Spider-Man. All have extended time where it's nearly an hour, if not more, before the character or even the fully actualized character kind of pops up on screen. Fully actualized for sure, yeah, 100%. So let's go with best scene then. Oh, I don't get to do my charismatic? Well, that's okay. I mean, it's fine. Whatever. No, and for the record, I had I had John Williams actually for most charismatic, but I, I think I might switch that to Donner, but I, I want to hear yours. Marlon Brando. Okay. Every time that guy is on camera, you are just sucked into him. He does have like gravitas, you know? Yes, that's to me, that's the definition of charismatic. I mean, you remember Brando's performance, and how long was he in the film? Like 15 minutes? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, of course, that was about all he was in any film and got paid three or four million dollars for. But, yes, every time I see the guy in anything, you just immediately, memory of him in the role or the performance is there. So... That's why. It's funny because they do he gets top billing in the movie and, you know, he's the first name that comes up. And immediately I kind of rolled my eyes because I was just like, Jesus, he's not even I know he's not even in this movie. He's in the very beginning. And then, you know, some little cameos. But then as soon as he's on screen, like you said, you're just it's magnetic. You're really just you realize like, oh, yeah, this guy was there's a reason he was paid the millions and there's a reason that he was legendary and he's just he's just he has that gravitas and that charisma it is just natural and it exudes from him and and the fact that he's getting paid all this for little or nothing and he never memorizes a stinking line he uses (laughs) cue cards yeah through his entire career you do wonder how much more he was capable of if he'd sort of applied himself (laughs) i don't know I mean, it was only natural, though, that Christopher Reeve get third billing behind the best actor of 1971 and the best actor of 1972. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was quite a get. Yeah, no, it was. I mean, I remember they had their trailer, their first trailer that came out a few, a couple of years before the movie came out, or at least a year before the movie came out. They did a just this flying trailer. And just the first thing you saw was Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman. You know, they were really 
that was sort of because Christopher Reeve was unknown and they were they were I think they were scared that like, you know, no one's going to come see a Superman movie with an unknown actor. So they felt like they had to throw these big names up there. But I do think that that worked. I think that, you know, that was it was helpful to give it some um, validity and, you know, make the movie feel real and uh, like an like it like maybe they were going to be able to pull this off. If they can get Brando and Hackman, they must have something. All right. So now we will transition to best scene. Thank you. Awkwardly, of course. (laughs) So I have eight nominees here for a two and a half hour film. I'll just take that first full 15 minutes or so as one kind of sequence as the fall of Krypton. Because I don't really know if there's like a great moment to separate out all of those individual moments. It's just kind of one long sequence. Then I have Smallville High, which I think, again, is kind of a longer sequence. Is everything from him and the football to up until his dad dies, basically. Fortress of Solitude, self-explanatory. First Day at the Daily Planet. My Night with Superman, so borrowing the byline by Lois. Luther's Hijack, so the two times that they're trying to re- wire or reprogram the nuclear missile kryptonite so when he actually goes to luthor's lair and uh has to be rescued by miss tessmacher and then changing history the obvious allusion to the ending where he flies backward across the world and reverses somehow the rotation to somehow go back in time uh it's classic classic nonsense yeah yeah, when I think of that, I do the George Lopez. Yeah, it is. It is still just a conf- confounding choice. <laughs> Watching last <laughs> night, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this. And just I still to this day can't believe that they went with that. It's hilarious. And also what's funny to me is that as a child, I totally just bought into that. Like I didn't blink an eye until I was older. It was like, what the heck just happened? Yes, just stop the earth and the oceans don't just kind of like blow off the entire world yeah of these for best scene for me it's funny because there's i guess maybe two parts to the scene and the first part is my favorite part of the movie and my sec and the second part is one of my least favorite parts in the movie and i just mentioned it is the my night with superman um him flying in and doing an interview with her it just humanized that character so much their chemistry is just completely apparent He's so charming in that moment, like Superman on a date. It just, it, it sh- I don't know that it should work as well as it did for me, but it does. It's just, I rewound that scene a couple times last night because it just is really, really charming. And I think it's, it sums up everything that Reeve did well, which was like be the strong, powerful guy, but also vulnerable and, you know, brought emotion to it. Their banter is really cute and it just works for me. And then they fly off and do the god awful like schmaltz after that that I just personally can't handle. But I just love the scene on the balcony. I just think it's great. I actually also had that as my, I guess, best scene simply because it has both of the elements. You described the acting performances and kind of the tone of the movie, trying to get what the movie was actually supposed to be about in my opinion, but it does also have the special effects because you needed to have a sequence where Superman's flying around and you just see him kind of being able to fly. Even if it's kind of hokey now, 
you know, you've at least got that element to it. And from a technical standpoint, I cannot remember for the life of me. I think it's in my book, like the hundred things you need to know about Superman before you die or something to that effect, where there was some big name director that for the life of him could not figure out and had to go and specifically ask Richard Donner how they did the one shot from him flying off the balcony to him being at the door because he couldn't see where the cut was and how they did that supposed sequencing between the two shots. So I'm still not sure how they exactly did that, but apparently the technicality of it was impressive. So both on a technical standpoint and to its importance to the movie, I think that would be my best scene. From one of the behind the scenes uh, documentaries that I watched, they described, Mario Kidder described that they, and, and actually Christopher Reeve talked about it, that the wire workers kept screwing that up. And so when, when he first arrives, when he pulls in they <laughs> a couple times, he, they went too low and he just ran into the bottom of the balcony and just like disappeared. So she would see him coming in and then he would just drop down and whack into the, the balcony. And then other times he went, they took him too high and he flew past her and ran and went through the doorway. <laughs> so it was, I don't know. I just thought that that was funny that it took, it, it seems so seamless and perfect and smooth when you finally see it on the screen. But uh, there was a lot of behind the scenes uh, trial and error going on. I like uh, Luther's undergrown lair. I just like it because it gives at least some opportunity for uh, Superman to, to be more human, more mortal, and having to rely on the help of someone else. And so to that extent, I just thought that it was kind of a more humanizing of Superman than other scenes. So I went with that as my best scene. I mean, as, as one-dimensional as Hackman's performance was, at least that was about the best of it, if you can say that. Yeah, I don't even, I don't hate Hackman's performance in it. I just think that he wasn't given much. I, I feel like he did well with what he was given, but I think it just, what he was given was very one note. But he's, you know, he's kind of smarmy and, I sort of had fun with it. I just, it, it could, it doesn't even need to be in the movie, it feels like to me. But, and I did like that scene. I actually considered it because I, I agree. It does, it's very humanizing. I think the, the one problem that I have with that scene is at the very end, it's just so, it's just something that would not go over today. Her like kissing him while he's, you know, under the influence of kryptonite and then him just being like, oh, you know, someday you'll find a nice man, young lady. And like, he's totally fine with just, it's just a very weird kind of um, <laughs> almost like date rapey scene that I don't know. It just kind of that really, it kind of icked me a little bit last night. I was just like, oh, I forgot about that. Why can't I find a, a great guy that I can take advantage of while he's <laughs> incapacitated? It's <laughs> very strange. As far as favorite scene, it's the same scene as my best scene, so I'm not going to really have much more to say. I have a feeling based on previous responses that, Shane, that's the same for you as well. No, actually, my favorite scene that I, what I put as my favorite scene, like I said, I really love that that balcony scene. I think that it sort of is, is a great encapsulation of everything I love about the movie. But I think my favorite scene, just because it's more fun to watch, and it was, is the Superman reveal, is the really the helicopter uh, saving scene where he first pulls the shirt open, he flies off. The guy tells him, you know, Oh, it's a fly suit or whatever. Like it's just these great funny moments. You get sort of everything. And then you get uh, Superman saving Lois for the first time. And there he's just so 
charismatic. He's so winning and charming and like that you get his, that smile for the first time. And after you've been through an hour of this movie that kind of plods along for a while and sort of, you know, there, there are some great moments and some, some sort of long unnecessary moments. And then you get a lot of Christopher Reeve being Clark Kent, which is fun and kind of endearing in a way, but also it's not what you came for. And then you get, boom, that transition. It, it, to me, it really shows how great of an actor Christopher Reeve is because I just almost forgotten how freaking amazing he is as Superman because you're watching an hour and 14 minutes and you see him this bumbling, silly role that you know is going to change. But you sort of, until he makes that transition and comes out of that, the revolving door and is Superman, to me that just... I got chills like last night. I actually like, ooh, I was just getting like goosebumps watching him come out of that door and fly off and, and pick Lo pick up Lois, grab the helicopter, fly back up. And he even does the sort of, uh, you know, that great <laughs> moment where as he's walking away, he like he can't stop himself from like turning around and giving her a little lecture about like, oh, and by the way, don't don't be scared to fly. It's still, you know, it's still safer than driving or something. Just doing that, like the more, you know, Superman moment that he just has to do. And uh, I just think everything about that scene is great. And it just gets my blood pumping and kind of makes the movie for me. So that's what I put for favorite scene. I love the part where he's first coming out and he's going to change. He goes to the first telephone. Yes. Booth, and it's, and it's a half, half booth. booth. And he's like, <laughs> yeah. uh, nah, can't do that. Like like the full telephone booth with all the glass is any more private. Yeah. Right, right. I did like that it was a nod to how these things change in like it sort of shows that a character has to be updated over time. And because some of these things just don't make sense anymore. I mean, nowadays we don't even have the half booths. Well, no. Where, where's he going to be changing now? Yeah. Well, that's where I think this new movie is going to have to kind of bend over backwards a little bit as to how to do the journalism of the Daily Planet in a modern sense. Right. Yeah. These are, these are the things that, you know, just aren't going to exist. Anymore. Like being an editor of a newspaper is like not going to be a thing in 20 years, you know? Well, in a way, could it be that Lois and Clark are hosting a podcast together? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's guy, they're going to have to update it somehow. It's going to be the only thing that probably makes sense by that point. I mean, yeah, especially if it's delayed by the strikes and everything else. You can talking about 2026. Yeah, Superman on TikTok. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, yeah. Dad, did you already give your favorite? Well, it's the same. Underground lair. So if I didn't, i just repeat it. So Okay. As far as most indelible moment, unfortunately, it's in a slightly negative tone for me. It's going to be the ending. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The way that this movie ends is so ridiculous that unfortunately it kind of supersedes everything else about the movie. And I think that's one of the things that Christopher Nolan's always gotten right for me. Well, or for the most part, I still haven't forgiven him quite for Tenet, but he knows how to begin a movie and how to end a movie. That's the lasting impression you'll always have how you begin and how you end that sets where everybody's at tonally and the middle, you can make some mistakes here and there, but for whatever reason, this movie, begins in a really high production level set on Krypton and it ends with I'm not even sure what to call it. Yeah, I I totally understand where you're coming from. And again, for me, it just doesn't it always makes me laugh and it kind of is an eye roll moment for me, but it doesn't taint the movie as much as I think it does for you guys. 
I for me the 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 most indelible image for me is the way the movie ends, which is actually Superman flying up into space and then kind of banking away and that smile that Christopher Reeve gives. And that stuck with me. And I don't think I've ever and and him pulling his shirt open. They're just these indelible moments for me. And I'd I'd kind of forgotten about the world turning backwards thing. And it wasn't uh, it is completely silly. I don't understand where they thought they were coming from with that. You know, anyone who knows anything about physics and <laughs> and and science is just absolutely horrified when that happens. But I, I also think, again, it was one of those. I feel like, you know, Dick Donner is a really, really smart guy. And I feel like what he was doing there was very intentional, that he was saying, look, you've bought into this comic book world this entire time. You're willing to accept that a man can fly and can catch bullets. So we're going to go all in. In this comic book world, the normal, obviously, the normal physics don't apply. And so just go another step with me. And I think as a kid, like I said, I was all in. I was just like, that is brilliant. This is amazing. It's it, it's emotional. I really do like the acting actually in that scene. I think Reeve really sells it as him being, you know, the death of the kind of like con moment. It's just like con, like just no, everyone has to have that moment. He really pulls it off. And so I don't know, as, as a kid, it worked for me. And I think that as an adult, if I turn off, if I just go with the movie and have fun with it, I'm fine with that scene. But yeah, if you are, if you're kind of sticking to your guns as an adult and having trouble, like completely the suspension of disbelief there is tough. It, that's a, that's a big ask, I think. And for me, I was willing to go with it, but I do see it as being utterly ridiculous. I mean, if you were to open up urban dictionary and look up plot holes, it'd say ending of Superman. I mean, there are so many plot holes in that. He, he saves Lois, but yet he missed Lois because he was saving the fault from destroying the dam. And so what happened? He saves Lois now and the dam breaks? I, I, I It just made my head spin. More than the earth turning backward. And you had a comic convenient path to actually make that scene work, but you don't use it. I'm sure because they weren't versed in in the comic book lore. But theoretically, if there has been a very famous race between the Flash and Superman to see who the fastest man alive is, and we still don't know who won, theoretically, then couldn't Superman also go into the Speed Force and go back in time? So he creates a duplicitous version of himself whereby he can also save Lois and save everyone else. That's the way to do it. Unfortunately, we got this <laughs> i do i don't know i just do think it's funny that we're like uh, in, a, in a movie about a guy who flies and catches bullets that you know we're really having trouble with, with this concept of the earth turning backwards but i i do say where you guys are coming from it's just for me it kind of like again it's part of the charm of the movie that they're just willing to throw everything out the window and kind of have a deuce ex machina come in and just like, all right, we're, we're, you know, he's Superman, just accept it. <laughs> and, and for me, I'm willing to do that, but I don't see why I can understand why a lot of people wouldn't. It's kind of like my wife and why she hates family guy because the dog talks. I'm like, yeah, I can understand <laughs> that. I mean, after all, we've seen so many rabbits and ducks who talk yeah. general, general population. Yeah, we have no like problem it. with bugs and Daffy. Mm hmm. 
but the movie teaches you how to watch it. I mean, they've said that there are stakes and consequences, yet when he goes back in time, there's no undoing of all of the other things that he's done, and the card isn't swallowed up the second time. There's no, like, crack that opens up in the earth. So what is he actually saving her from, other than he just went back in time, and she can able to get out of the car without any damage at all? That just doesn't sink in. Yeah, I would be interested to see, you know, I've never seen Donner actually address it, and I'd be interested to see what his rationale was or at least or even you know puzo like why why did you write this <laughs> where 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 how did this make sense to you but again you know it is an interesting movie in that one of the things that we haven't brought up and that i didn't think about until this viewing is that he doesn't fight in this movie there there is no you know the stakes become high all of a sudden he's going to destroy the San Andreas fault with a with some missiles and you know take out the west coast or something but that doesn't happen until the movie's almost over and up until then superman has just like saved some people but he hasn't he doesn't have a single fight he doesn't throw a punch he doesn't take on an enemy directly you know he just we don't even see him apprehend luther he just kind of flies in with him afterwards it almost feels like the you you know the the stakes in this movie are sort of this is I I don't know if we talked about like did we do the what is this movie about because that was interesting to me that's where I sort of had all these thoughts was what is this movie about because it's not about fighting Lex Luthor it's not about fighting evil it's not about fighting anyone there is no fighting it is a movie about being Superman becoming Superman and sort of uh, navigating the world as Superman and and dealing with you know being a perfect person in an imperfect world. And there's just, there's a lot there. And it feels like the stakes and the, and the, uh, and the villain and, and, and whatever he's up against is less important. And so again, I, I just don't feel like the missiles mattered. I don't feel like, like turning the earth back was more to like, I think it was metaphorical, right? Superman loves Lois Lane so much that he's willing to like, turn back time. He will do whatever it takes. And not only that, he will defy his father's wishes, right? His father had said, do not interfere in their, don't change their history, don't interfere with their history. And he does it. And the point of that scene, I think, is to is to show the depth of feeling that he has for Lois. And so I think that it is a metaphor, and I don't think it was intended to be taken super seriously. And I think, I feel like that's what Donner would say. And again, I don't know that that holds water. And I think with most people, they probably wouldn't accept that but again, I, that's kind of how I think of it and how the reason that I'm okay with it, because it feels like that part doesn't matter to me. It, it's more what it symbolizes as opposed to what it actually what actually happens. Well, I think there are going to be more points to address some of these remaining questions here at the end, and I don't want to constantly undermine it now, but I think this is probably the best spot to take our second break, and uh, I guess we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our master greatest movies of all time list that has every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to RonnieDuncanStudios.com slash Podcast and find it as the top entry on the greatest movie of all time podcast show page. That has the grades we've done for all the movies we've graded so far, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Robert Swan, 78, American actor. Did Hoosiers, Natural Born Killers, Backdraft, 
and the Untouchables. Johnny Hardwick, 64, American voice actor, did Dale Gribble on King of the Hill. Walter Charles, 78, American actor, was in Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Fletch Lives, Prancer, mostly a stage actor, he made his Broadway debut in Greece. Robbie Robertson, 80, a Canadian musician and songwriter for the band. The songs The Wait, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, and Up on Cripple Creek were among his classics. A key Bob uh, Dylan collaborator. Arthur Schmidt, 86, American film editor. Did Back to the Future, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and Forrest Gump. He won the Academy Award for editing in 1988 and 94, was a longtime collaborator with Robert Zemeckis. And William Friedkin, 87, American film director, did The French Connection, The Exorcist, and To Live and Die in L.A., won the Oscar in 1971. Definitely have some titans on the list this week. I'm... Obviously not that familiar, not being from the industry with certain editors and such, but at least notable in his work, a two-time editing Oscar winner for Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Forrest Gump, and also one of the, I guess you could say, pop culture moments of the 80s with Back to the Future. You have at least one of the up-and-coming new Hollywood directors in Friedkin that is responsible for a couple of notable, huge American classics in The French Connection and The Exorcist, obviously the winner of the Best Director in 1971, and given that we're talking about Gene Hackman on the show this week, obviously a big name to consider, but even musically, this is now the second consecutive week after we had uh, the uh, member of the Eagles die last week, that we have another fairly significant, if not necessarily recognizable, musician pass away. And we've talked about it on multiple occasions with this show that we like to do this section. I know partly because you getting into the age you are, are a lot more nostalgic for certain people during these times from the 70s, 80s, 90s that are all going to be coming up on their fates, for lack of a better term, but that appreciate what they've done, what they've accomplished and don't allow them to necessarily fade into the history books, per se. So I'm just appreciative that, yes, again, I know we had, I guess, six names on the list this week, and we have a great collection of diversity among those six names as to what they've accomplished, but we recognize them here with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. All right, let's make the weekly awkward transition to best funniest lines. Miss Testmacher, it's too good to be true. He's 6'4", has black hair, blue eyes, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, and tells the truth. I always always loved uh, Margot Kidder's when he grabs her as she's falling and she realizes that they're flying and he says, easy, miss, I've got you. And she says, you've got me. Who's got you? Superman, I'm here to fight for truth and justice in the American way. Lois Lane, you're going to end up fighting every elected official in this country. 
Yeah, it's a classic. She has a lot of great lines. So since you two have both taken ones that I had on my list, I only have one more already. Superman. Uh, you really shouldn't smoke, you know, Miss Lane. Lois. Don't tell me. Lung cancer, right? Superman. Well, not yet, thank goodness. There's a lot of great lines from that scene where she... And I was surprised at how many little kind of off-color bits there are in this movie. There are things that I just hadn't noticed. Like, even the fact that someone gets killed by a train. Like, like Luther... For for Luther being sort of this one-note, silly kind of uh, comic book, I don't know, no gravitas at all villain, he, like, murders someone in the most brutal way possible by pushing him out in front of a train and the guy gets run over. So I was surprised that there were some sort of adult things that I'd forgotten about in this movie. And so you have Lois Lane in that scene saying, uh, how big are you? Um, I mean, how tall are you? Which I like. One of the things that's aged probably the worst that stuck out for me, what color underwear am I wearing? Yeah. Yeah. And then he actually checks. <laughs> like once she moves away from the planter, uh, pink. Yeah. And she like moves back to the planter. Just pretty, it was pretty awkward. I think the only other one I had was that when they were flying, Superman is saving the, the plane that has a blown out engine. And uh, the guy just says, he asks, like, what's going on out there? And, and the other guy says, don't look, just fly. We got something. I ain't saying what it is. Just trust me. Dad, you have any left? Superman, is this how a warped brain like yours gets its kicks? By planning the death of innocent people? Lex Luthor. No, by causing the death of innocent people. All right. If you guys don't have any left, we'll just quickly move into the Stanley rubric. Legacy is up first. Uh, Dad, let's let you take it. All right. Industry. I think it really did. I mean, it spawned four Batman films. Excuse me, four Superman films. Um, I think it led to somewhat the comic book generation for the industry. I'm going to give it a, an actual five because of its impact and the fact that it did for the public though, I'm going to give it points down compared to where it is. It's going to be much different when we're talking about impact and significance, but for the public, I'm going to give it a 2.5 because I think this is a completely forgotten film in modern times. Uh, with all the different stuff going on, I just don't think people remember it, think about it, discuss it, uh, realize what it was, or consider it. So, a 7.5. So, from an industry standpoint, I think it has to get some recognition, but I don't think it gets the full five. Because while this does lay down the marker, and we talked about how it kind of sets the template for a lot of origin films... I still don't think it is given as much credit as some films that came after it as what the modern superhero culture was going to be. Like this gives you the first couple of notes and all of them may follow the similar structure, but it's not in its form that excelled the most, if that makes sense. I would probably point to the 2002 or 2001 Spider-Man as being more in that vein of things people look at as the origin films that are a little bit more responsible for what we had after it. And then more specifically, Batman Begins and then Iron Man as kind of the crowning achievements of what origin films could become and the excellence that could be out of that. So while this 
gives you a few things. I also don't think that it's as widely appreciated among the industry or the critics as much because, again, we've had so many other superhero films after it and so many other, I would say, good ones or recognizable ones that this is 35 years old. Oh, no, excuse me, 45 years old. Boy, I took a decade off there for a second. Would you like to do that for me? (laughs) I'm sure you would like me to do that for you. I just don't know if it has quite the same effect. And obviously for the public, I agree with you. This is kind of a forgotten film. We, We just had the comment a minute ago that people younger than myself, and I'm 33, that have no history with Christopher Reeve, if they have any at all, it's probably post-accident. So how much do people recognize Marlon Brando or Gene Hackman for this particular movie? It's just a little harder and a little bit more separated that we've had such a long time comparative to like Batman or Spider-Man or whatever, any of these comic book characters that have had multiple actors play them, that we really have not had a widely accepted Superman reboot kind of since Christopher Reeve left the cape. And so I had a 3.5 for the industry. I had a four for the audience just because of how much an outsized impact this probably has on what came after it. But I also arrived at a 7.5. Oh, well, okay. Yeah, I'll be the outlier here. I mean, I I feel like this movie was really groundbreaking. The, the, The things that we look at now as the way a character flies, like when you look at Iron Man, in, even in the modern CGI versions, they fly the way Christopher Reeve flew in that movie. You know, he set a template. Donner talked about it again in that documentary where he said, you know, Christopher Reeve didn't just hold his hands out in front of him the way they did in in the old t- cartoons and TV shows where you'd have both your hands like pointed out in front of you. He like held one hand up. He emoted. He like f- navigated the air and flew. It just set I think everything that when you go back and watch this movie now, it feels even though it feels of its time, it still feels like a modern superhero movie because it was the superhero movie that was the template. And so for me, I think the industry, if the industry doesn't recognize it, they, they're just they don't understand. But I, I I think that they would have to acknowledge that so much came from this. And, and, you know, I, I think a lot of people do. I think, you know, even Nolan has talked about it. A lot of people have talked about how that first, first Superman movie just to- showed them what could be done with superheroes and the way to do it correctly. And I don't think you have Marvel without the first Superman movie. Uh, so I'd give it a five for the industry. For the public, uh, I agree that it has in some ways fallen off the map. I But I do think that, like you said, there is a subconscious inability to embrace a Superman because of Christopher Reeve, because of this movie, and probably even more Superman 2. But this is where it started. And the reason is because it is that iconic in the public subconscious. And so for me, I gave it a 3.5 for the public. So for me, it's a total of 8.5. You've convinced me at least a little bit to change somewhere in there. Maybe not from an audience standpoint, but probably for the industry as far as a few other technicalities and the flight point is enough. So I'll raise mine to an eight and thus make it a uh, average of eight. Cheater. (laughs) I can play the numbers however I like. I'm the host. That's right. I do the math on this show. You only offer and then never help. You're the Superman of this, of this podcast. 
Well, I'm the one with the big S. <laughs> Impact and significance for me is a, a much higher bar given how this was outsized in its time. Obviously, I think from an industry standpoint, this was significant for being a high fantasy film in an era where we really didn't have the technology to kind of do a lot of that quite yet. I mean, obviously Star Wars the year before, but that was groundbreaking for its time. So for this to come shortly on the heels and create a franchise out of it was an era where we didn't have this kind of production design or this kind of stunt work. It's kind of well ahead of its time for what was going to eventually be possible with superhero films. I mean, there's a reason that Batman didn't come until like 11 years later and Spider-Man not for another almost 25 years, I think. So it's just, it's a different attitude as to where it, it was. Obviously, Warner Brothers, it was a significant marker for them as a studio being their highest producing film at the time. They obviously greenlit a second one, although it gave only 80% of the job to Richard Donner and then didn't let him finish is always going to sit poorly. I think from an audience standpoint, being the biggest movie of that year, maybe I should probably even go up beyond it. So I'm going to go a four for the industry, only taking points off in that it was not the critically, because uh, yes, while the critics for the most part were positive, there's kind of a note of, well, this isn't necessarily like a critically important film, but this is something that we kind of like and appreciate and can note the production design and the rest of it. But it's not like it was really rewarded for any of that at the Oscars, as we've already mentioned. But I'll go, I guess, a five on the uh, public, given how well it produced both in 1978 and 1979 from a box office standpoint and became Warner's biggest film to date at that point. So I'm at a nine. The critics, I mean, they basically did not like it. They were they would point out all the technical flaws, the errors, the things that were badly done. The screenplay was not that good. There were th technically things good in it. So I, 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 I went with a 3.5, and it's primarily because of some of the innovative shots and uh, special effects and such. I mean, it only got a couple of nominations for Academy Awards. It was more about the product, the final product, not the elements making it up that made so. But it's for the for the public. I'm going a perfect five because I lived through that era, and I'm telling you, this was huge. Everybody was talking about Superman. Everybody at this point knew Christopher Reeve. It kind of propelled Richard Donner and moved his career along because he had done television primarily before that he was and i'm going to talk about this if you're my generation you grew up as a kid watching the banana splits and uh donner directed it <laughs> and uh which is kind of a uh farcical stuffed animal type show and you know he went on to do lethal impact and and uh or excuse me lethal weapon and all of those films so I'm going with a five for uh, public, so an eight point five overall. Yeah, I'm right. I'm right in there with you guys. Uh, for the public five, this was just massive. It was just a cultural event 
And as far as the industry, I, I see where, what you're saying, that it wasn't necessarily a critical darling. But for the industry as a whole, in Hollywood, I think, you know, it was a huge bet. They spent a ton on this movie. They went way over budget. They were making two at once, which was something that just wasn't a thing that really happened very much. Like they had, they were all in on this. If the first movie had been a flop, you know, they would have still, it, it would have been just a massive, massive ex explosion. And, and in the industry, I think it would have been a neutron bomb going off and just showing like, you can't take big bets like this. It's just too risky. So for the first movie to to come out the gates the way it did was, I think it really informed the industry for a long time that you can, you know, that I don't think you get maybe the Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings trilogy being shot all at once the way it was and them being willing to spend that much money on it without something like this bet on Superman paying off. So I, I think it had an impact on the industry. Again, sometimes the industry doesn't like to admit the the impact that it had but but it was still there so i gave the i gave a four so i was with you and i went to thomas and i went with a nine so that's an 8.83 average between the three of us novelty i'm going to score this probably pretty highly but i'm going to let shane take this one first novelty is interesting for me i actually was hoping to hear your guys' scores because i okay i i, I do think that it is it was very novel in that it, again it it broke a lot of ground technically with what they could do but you know they were using i mean they were adapting a comic book like this was storyboarded uh from comic books essentially they were taking a character that was super beloved and already uh, an icon of you know since the 1930s or late 20s i guess uh, you know I, so i i don't know i don't know where to put this on a novelty scale i, I think i'm going to defer to you guys and then i'm just going to cheat and make my ratings based on what you guys do because i'm i i was really conflicted about this one so i i have my thought but dad i'll give you the option do you want to go first or second yes because i have the longevity okay i'm a huge old-time radio fan so i listen to a lot of old recorded radio. superman was on the radio through the late 40s into the 50s. I watched the TV show with George Reeves. Okay, so Superman was or as a visual vehicle or as a show or a movie was not that novel, okay? What was novel is the way it was characterized. So I'm giving it points up because they made it into a feature film and made Superman into a true movie character. I have to give points down because Superman was so prevalent. Everybody knew it had been around. So I'm going with a 7.5 for that reason. Because just the sheer fact that this... But the bringing it current and making it into more than it had been is where the novelty rises. See, I just simply went higher. I know you make this argument all the time, Dad, that if it has pre-existing IP, it can't be that novel. Sometimes that's true, but there are things within that parameter that I just don't buy, such as we had this discussion when it came to The Dark Knight because it was a sequel. Is that really novel? And I thought yes, because even on the success of the first one, it just did some things that were just different. I was struck by it because it seemed so 
different from every other Batman movie I'd seen up to that point because it didn't have his parents dying and it didn't have all of the easy pre-markers. It didn't have the quippy ice puns. It, it was just different. This, while there's pre-existing stuff, I don't think George Reeves was necessarily flying in the same way that he was this time. You didn't really get the depictions of Krypton in the way that it was, or the on-screen version, the, the full imaging of the Fortress of Solitude in that way. He wasn't able to pick up helicopters and just gently place them on top of a building type of stuff. So as far as the stunt work and the visual effects, I mean, it has to be noted that of the one Academy Award it did win, it was for visual effects. There's just something about creating a world that just didn't exist prior to this. And yes, people have this image in their mind, but it's different when you can see it fully actualized on screen. You've created a world that you have a visual component to it now that this could actually happen. And so for me, that's just different. I can't give it full points. I can't get up to the level of, you know, truly novel stuff, in my opinion. We, we just discussed 2001 last week. That's like a full 10. But I still think this has to get some level of notoriety or novelty from the standpoint of how many things on or in movie culture was depicting a man who could fly or an alien planet or something that just was so foreign at the time. I mean, you maybe had Star Wars, and that was the only comparable thing as far as fantasy of the moment. So in other words, novelty creating a new situation, uh, a new world, etc. So in other words, every person who's a parent could ultimately be considered novel because they've created a new world and a new situation and a new type of environment for a new family. It doesn't work. You still have to it's take It's logically inconsistent. No, it's not. Yes, it is. You're creating no. it for a wide set of people as opposed to one person. The world still exists as it's seen by everybody else, even though the one person is now introduced to it. That doesn't fly. That's not logically consistent. Uh, sure. I mean, I, I guess, what, what, what did you give your score on that? I'm not sure if I heard you. If I didn't, it's a nine. Okay. Yeah, I'm somewhere in between on that. I do think that, you know, Superman was just such a part of the fabric of American life at that point that I, I do see where you're coming from. The IP certainly was not novel. Uh, and they took a lot directly from the source material. But again, the technical aspects of this movie, I mean, it was like nothing that people had seen. I think it set a template for the future. A lot of movies in the future, a lot of superhero movies could not be considered novel because of this movie, because this movie had done it for the first time. So I think it is, uh, I, I understand where you're both coming from. I think I lean more toward the idea that this movie is novel just because of, again, you'll believe a man can fly and people did. And before that, it was really hard to, to they just didn't, you know, it's like one of those, you know, we just, we don't have the technology. We can't, we can't pull this off. And they made it happen. They did what's, what Lucas did with Star Wars, which was, you know, take a little bit of everything, stop motion, uh, animation, 
visual effects, wire work, and they just put it all together and made something happen that was unique and that felt fresh and that really ignited the imagination of the uh, of the country in a way that nothing other than Star Wars probably had in decades. So I would go probably an 8.5 for novelty. Congratulations on being able to slide between two massive egos. <laughs> I know, I was going to split the difference here. So that's an 8.33 between the three of us. Classicness. Dad, I'll let you lead off. You're going to have a lot of problems with Superman in the future. The panties were the one that really set me <laughs> off. Okay? I mean, it's just creepy at this point in time. Because what what are you going to do with the next round? Is going, oh, shaved? Yeah. I mean, that's where we're going after this. I mean, that's that's the level of creepiness that we potentially have here if you do not alter that dynamic, okay? Yeah, it just... And there's a lot of other issues about that that I have some is- or problems with as far as, of course, he's the savior of the world and he's a white man. That's another one that I kind of go... You know, yeah. <laughs> and the damsel in distress is Lois, even though she's a fairly strong character in this film in general. So I, I went with a 5.5 for classicness because there's just so much that could be potentially creepy about this film as it ages. You're going to have to, on a new one version, really alter what Superman's capabilities and uh uh superpowers are yeah i don't think they go to the level of his x-ray vision being able to like go between certain layers but then stop at other layers to be able to identify certain things it's a little odd that somehow x-ray vision is that able to focus (laughs) well cameras can focus but i mean you know well, given that initial interlude, I would have thought for sure you would have scored lower than I did because you had me already scrambling a little bit for a few factors that I didn't throw in, such as Shane mentioned the Tessmacher kiss scene or the, the underwear I guess I hadn't put in there. I think I was harshest on this, one, because the ending is so awkward um, and kind of nonsensical and you have a really kind of crappy villain the graphics don't hold up nearly as well i mean again you pointed out because you thought that the graphics didn't hold up very well in 2001 a space odyssey last week and i pointed out (laughs) the flight through space of his spaceship just looks so bad in a modern comparison against the background of the stars and everything else that yeah and the design of that spaceship being like a i don't know like a icicle or something. I don't know what that was. But I think part of this is is that the tone doesn't really make sense to people who don't watch a lot of 70s movies. Like, I, I, I think it's a little bit foreign to be this tongue-in-cheek about stuff, especially when we take this, especially superhero culture, so seriously anymore for, like, the comic book fans, the super nerds like myself. Like, if you tried to throw this out today... I just think you'd have a clear revolt. So if you're going to give it some classicness, it's going to be on Christopher Reeve, on the music, 
on a few of the other execution standpoints, but I don't think it overcomes a lot of the other issues and the creepiness does kind of factor in. So (laughs) I reserve the right to kind of come back to this. I originally had a five and that's what I'll give for right now, given that the baseline's at a seven and I've worked a little bit backward, but I think there's a possibility I could move lower if push comes to shove here, just based on those extra factors I hadn't thought of before. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I agree 100% that it would not, you know, if you put this out today, it's very problematic. Uh, certainly millennials would roll their eyes at a lot of stuff. This would not go and, you know, whatever the new generation that we're on now, I think we're way past millennials. But I do think that that there is a lot that is classic about it that still is sort of consistent with the superhero genre. You know, we're still putting out Superman movies with a white savior. I mean, I, I don't think that's, as much as I think there's a push to diversity and you have your Black Panthers out there, there still is a market for w- white saviors. I don't think that tracks weirdly to me. I do think that there was a lot that would, I, I, you know, the Margot Kidder character, she is very spunky. She is very uh, opinionated. She's she's a a woman who is a professional, a working professional. But at the same time, she's like starry eyed for the hot, guy that she doesn't know at all like she doesn't know him other than that he's hot and strong and she's you know writing love poems in her head so there is a lot that is slightly like i said there is some icky in there uh and there's some stuff that i think is a a turnoff to people of today and even to me watching it right you know with remembering how it was then i still feel weird about it now but I do think that it's a classic movie. I do think that in a lot of ways, you know, it, it it follows an arc that, like you said, it really the great template for a superhero origin story. That to me is just classic, giving people the full history of a character to really build up tension and expectation before the reveal. You know, there's just something classic feeling about this movie to me. And so I would go a little higher. I'd go probably like a like a six. Well, that'll make the math really easy then. It's a 5.5. There we go. But I I do think there are, it's a complicated movie because I do understand where its place is in the comic book universe overall, but there are just some things that obviously wouldn't fit in a modern sense. And so it's, it's always going to be a tough one to kind of grade out. So to come to kind of a grouping consensus like that, I think we did the best we could. So rewatchability If you've been following over the last several months, we've kind of introduced our new test uh, from a longtime friend of the show. So how likely am I to put this movie on? Given that it's probably been about 10 years since I've put it on, I'm going to be positive and say at two. How likely am I to leave it on? Depends on at which point in the movie it starts. I think that this movie is way too long, that they could have cut down certain sequences. And I know you have to like really give background to the character and the, and the rest, but had we gotten into the full Superman version a little bit quicker, they take a long time on Krypton for something that we don't really need a ton of background on. Now I know I say that coming at the character, having seen the destruction of Krypton probably about 15 times in modern media, but it probably could have been reduced quite a bit, even if Marlon Brando was going to be paid the same amount for, 
even less time on screen. And his Smallville days, you just don't focus on it that much comparative to what you wanted out of the, the full Superman. So this is two and a half hours. And I know most comic book movies are basically about that at this point. I probably could have given it a little bit lower, but if you start and this is on on cable or streaming somewhere where you're just picking up where Superman's kind of introduced, yeah, I'd be willing to leave this on. So I also gave that a two for a four. I I would go, this is an interesting one for me because I agree with you 100%. There are just parts of this movie that I just don't want to sit through. Like I literally last night rewatching, there were times where if, if I wasn't kind of taking notes for, the, for knowing I was going to be on this show, I would have just fast forwarded because, but the, I would be fast forwarding to get to the parts that I freaking love about this movie. And, you know, that first reveal, I could watch it over and over again, just watching uh, just watching Christopher Reeve do his thing, I, I, it just makes me happy. I There are so many things I love about this film, but there is a lot of it that I just wouldn't watch. I mean, literally, if I loved, I would not, I don't know that I would go to a movie theater and rewatch this movie. That doesn't interest me because it's too long and there's too much that I don't want to see. But knowing that it's on um, HBO Max, you know, I can jump in and just fast forward past the parts that bore me. I would watch this movie over and over again for the great parts that I love. So because I because I can rewatch this movie the way I want to rewatch this movie uh, and we have the technology, uh, I'm going to give it a I would probably give it like a yeah, I'd probably give it a four point five. But, I, you know, point taken that I, I wouldn't want to sit through it again like I did last night through the entire the entirety of the boring parts. The problem I have is, is that this is a movie that. If it's if it's turned on, you know, like I'm flipping through the channels and it's on and I'll stop and I'll watch 10, 15 minutes, I will. But am I going to put this on anytime soon? Am I going to say, hey, you interested in watching a movie? Oh, you know, we haven't watched this one in a while. No, I, I went with a 4.5 simply because... I'm not going to necessarily turn it off, but I'm not going to I'm not going to to migrate towards it if I have an option. What it did was make me want to watch. I'm going to watch Superman 2 tonight actually. I have it queued up. So for me it was like, ah, it was a nice way to set the groundwork for a movie that I think is more exciting all the way through. I don't even I know I've seen it, but I'm trying to even remember what Superman 2 was. It's where they fight the three, uh, the three that were banished. Okay. Yeah. So it introduces Terrence Stamp and General Zod and his two cohorts that are banned to the Phantom Zone, and then they come back. And in the meantime, because of the consequences of the ending of the first movie, I think, then he strips down his powers and tries to live a normal life and realizes that even though he's happy with Lois, the world still needs Superman. So he has to have his powers again, just as Zod pops up and, yeah, creates a rather iconic villain in General Zod. Yeah, Zod's great. Okay. And still has a fairly surprising ending the first time you see it. And is more of an action. It's it's more analogous to a superhero movie now where... Uh, not an origin story, but, you know, it, an action movie. It, it has it has actual fights in it. So that's a 4.33 average between the three of us. So then we have audience score. We had a 79% for Google users, 
and an 86% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.25. So to recap the categories, we had an 8 for Legacy, 8.83 for Impact Significance, an 8.33 for Novelty, a 5.5 for Classicness, a 4.33 for Rewatchability, and an 8.25 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of... 43.5 and placing it on our list currently tied with the fugitive interesting okay well given how exact that score is 43.24 to be tied with something what's directly above and below so then let's see here so oceans 13 is just ahead Mm. and the cane mutiny is just behind okay but those, it's a cluster of groupings. Like Oceans 13 is 43.45, and the Kane Mutiny is 43.2. So it's, it's not very far off. And as always, if you disagree with our scores, you can send all of your thoughts to greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on the website. I think there's a comment section somewhere in there on RonnieDuncanStudios.com slash Podcast, or find one of our social feeds at Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Let's move into remaining questions. Why doesn't Lois's car get swallowed up by the earth the second time, given that there's no fault in the earth? So I'm not sure how that consistently works. It doesn't. They wouldn't give another car to be swallowed up. I mean, everything was product placement in this film. Oh, yeah. There was like the Cheerios box I noticed really clearly in the very beginning. So if the car falls in a fault line that basically just opens up and so then it falls in, where is all the dirt coming from that suffocates her? That part I just didn't quite understand is, is that how is it filling in? It's not like she's falling into a fault line of quicksand. Yeah. Yep. Fair. If Luther is already a fugitive, and this is my entire thing about where he's actually more dangerous in the way that he's normally drawn in the comics. He is a member of the bureaucracy. He is a powerful individual and he feels insignificant to the power of Superman. And so really what this is, is the power of humankind extreme wealth, extreme bureaucracy, people in positions of power, the modern Jeff Bezos. Also both. I was going with Marjorie Taylor Greene, but okay. <laughs> there you go. You you hold this person up and instead we've pigeonholed him because he's already a fugitive. I don't understand why that you make him a fugitive, particularly given that his entire evil plan relies on valuable real estate that he can't even like use or transact because he's already a fugitive. They would have frozen his assets. It makes no sense to the overall plan. And I know this is extremely nitpicky, but it's one of the biggest things that bothers me about this version of the villain. You've you've drawn him in such a box. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, I mean, if you get nitpicky with this, there's a lot. One of the ones that just kind of irked me last night for no reason was when uh, Superman, I guess, apprehends those criminals on a boat and he leaves the entire boat in front of the police station on the street, I guess, to show, like, I don't know, to show what he's done or as a trophy or I don't know what the point is. And he flies off and there's now this big yacht in front of 
the police station. Like who's who's moving this yacht that is now in the middle of the street? And I didn't. There's just things like that where it's like, okay, you know, it's a it's a cartoon world. My other like, I guess, big plot issue is they make a big point out of it early on in the film and obviously in the ending. Superman not supposedly being able to change history. Now, that's not clearly defined. What exactly is changing history? But two, I don't understand why he's forbidding it. They never really give a causal relationship. So maybe that's in the second movie as to why the consequences were going to be, because I know that they're kind of two halves of the same whole in a way. But it just doesn't make sense if that's the only thing you see is that from this film, why it is that he's set on Earth to be different. But then he isn't everything he's doing technically changing human history. Anytime he would be involved in anything, it's changing the course of what could or could not have happened. Yeah, I was trying to understand if that was from the source material. And there's something in the comics that, you know, explains that if there's like a a, no, you're saying no. Not as far as I could tell. I mean, I've tried to do enough background on this that that's never really come up as a Jor-El thing. Yeah, it just it does. Like you said, it, it just it's a really weird plot device so that later Superman can kind of go against something like you can't you want him to not be the constantly boring, squeaky clean character. And so they needed him to rebel against something. They needed something that every teenager could be like, yeah, I get that. F you, dad. And I guess that's the one that they came up with. But again, it makes no sense why he, he's constantly interfering in, in human life and creating history as he goes. We are for mature audiences, so you can use the word if you'd like. Okay, good. (laughs) Anyway, no, I mean, everything you do potentially changes human history. The only way that it mattered is if he goes back in time and alters something that's already happened. That's the only way it really ultimately changes history, because history is basically, you know, what we did two minutes ago. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It didn't, and it remains to be to me to be kind of this nebulous concept that I'm just going, oh well, it sounds really interesting, but when you stop and think about it, is pointless. Was it the idea that he maybe Jarrell knew that Superman had this ability to turn back time and was just telling him not to do that? Just, I mean, that's not what it seemed like, though. It seemed like, you know, why are you that's very specific, like, hey, by the way, don't do this one thing that we know you can do to fix things that went wrong. And why, like, drill that into him? And and why is that a theme through the whole movie? It didn't. Yeah, I don't know. I just find it odd that every version of Superman, especially if you go through the origins, has to separate out two commands from each of his father's. There's Jonathan Kent and there's Jor-El, and it'll never be consistent between both versions. One of his fathers wants him to be the symbol of hope and ability for mankind, and the other father wants him to hide all of his powers and not interfere in anything. In Man of Steel, it's the exact opposite relationship. Kevin Costner does not want him to interfere or be a part of mankind because he's afraid of what will happen if he is shown out in the world that he may be captured or, you know, he will be a target for everybody. And Jor-El in that version wants him to be the best version of what Krypton could have been on Earth and help humankind. 
in this version, it's the complete opposite. So I just don't quite understand where all of this comic continuity comes from. So maybe, maybe I'll get an acceptable response from James Gunn. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It is a head scratcher. I, I think this is one that just uh, has always kind of uh, bothered me a little bit. These are things that I wish we had Richard Donner and, and Mario Puzo here to explain because it, they feel like very obvious glaring question marks. And I'm curious as to what the answer would be. So, Dad, you mentioned before the notion of the white savior. And obviously, Superman being white has been the classic version of this all along. But I am just going to bring this up for the sake of bringing it up. We have two Superman projects in the pipeline. We have a Tanahasi Coates written version of Superman where there will be a black Superman. Okay. Now, I think that for some people will materially change what Superman represents. An all-powerful black man will be awfully threatening to a certain grouping of the population. But that being said, I actually thought this was somewhat eye-opening. So I, I had mentioned before Jerry Siegel and Joel Schuster, both Jewish men, and now we are going to supposedly have the first on-screen version of a Jewish man playing Superman in David Cornsweet. Hmm. Now, he's technically white, but is that a diversity play? Well, of course it is. Yeah, Let, let's let's explore it. What the hell? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, my, one of my favorite versions of Spider-Man so far is the Miles Morales. Let, take it in a different direction. Like we've done Superman. Maybe the only way to get away from Christopher Reeve is with a, a, a Superman of color or, you know, a different. So it has to be a complete right turn. And we start fresh. I don't think putting another white guy, you know, we, I, I don't know. We didn't address them individually, but I think. I have a lot of sympathy for Brandon Routh and Henry Cavill and trying to take a character that was so iconic and in the pantheon and so well defined by another actor and try to, you know, inject something new into it uh, is really hard. And so a black Superman to me, that's something different and something that I'd like to see a different, you know, a Superman of of any different, you know, anything that 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 is a right turn for the character, I think is worth a shot. And it might be a disaster. And it, it it's always scary because there's a lot riding on that. You know, I think Black Panther was a great example of where there's so much riding on that. And if it hadn't been a great film, it would have been a huge letdown and also really controversial. But so I think they better do a good job, I, I guess, is my only caveat with that. Don't screw it up. Yeah, I, I wish we wouldn't be in a society where it mattered. Ultimately, we're all living the human experience. And what difference does it make? Especially if it's, you know, again, it's a, it's a, it's a comic book character. It's like people got mad about uh, the, the Little Mermaid or, or Santa Claus being black. And it's just like this, these are not real people. If you yeah, if you all of a sudden made John F. Kennedy black like that, I don't know why we're doing that. Well, that's silly. But but making a, a fiction, a figment of someone's imagination can be whatever anyone else imagines that it is. I always had a little uh row with my minister because I'm Lutheran and you know we always had the uh German Jesus in the uh crush you know he was blonde and blue-eyed and I'm like you know I don't think Jesus was blonde and blue-eyed 
Pretty sure he was from the Middle East. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what we will project. Mm-hmm. So any other glaring remaining questions we want to throw out here? Or have we I shot have this to death enough? that I would like to make, which is just something that I find interesting. You know, Christopher Reeves was trained at Juilliard. And uh, when he had his accident and he was paralyzed from the neck down and he was in the hospital, one of the classmates who was one of his closest friends at Juilliard would come in every day and did so for months until he was released. Was it Robin? Yeah, it was Robin Williams. Yeah. He would come in every day, try to cheer him up, and because he felt laughter was one of the best medicines he could have, so he had some semblance of hope that he could live a life afterwards. And so I just find that to be one of the... Uh, what? Let's, let's put it this way. Once you hit about 55, just stupid stuff will make you tear up as a man. But, I mean, just thinking about the fact that this guy would spend so much of his time coming in to help his friend just makes me tear up right now. I'm sorry that things ended up the way they were because everything I've seen and heard about Robin Williams since just lets me believe this was one of the great humans on the face of the earth while he was here. I think both of them, you know, I, I, you never hear a bad word about Christopher Reeve. Like there's no one who will tell you that Christopher Reeve wasn't just a dedicated stand-up guy who took his job seriously, but also tried to make everyone else excel. Same with Robin Williams. You know, these two, it, it is such a tragic ending to two American icons. And, you know, Chris Rock has the whole bit about like Superman can't walk. Like that is really really affecting for i think a lot of a whole generation including me when you see him in in the wheelchair and to see that how well he handled it with real grace and you know that that was maybe more impressive than anything he did in a suit was how he dealt with what life handed him and uh, the the friendship between those two guys is the sweetest thing you know i've i've read a lot about it and heard a lot about it you had this small furry funny guy and this tall beautiful perfect human who just completely got each other and were both incredibly talented in their fields uh so it's just like a beautiful story and tragic but also inspiring and it, i'll just throw this out there i would recommend anyone watch uh still which is a documentary about michael j fox and I kind of didn't want to watch it. I'm a huge Michael J. Fox fan growing up. And I didn't really know that I wanted to see him that way. But seeing how he deals with it and how he has turned it into something that he can have a sense of humor about and that he can go through life that, you know, similar to the way Robin Williams helped Christopher handle that, it, it just is very inspiring. So I would recommend that. And I'm and I'm glad that, you know, I that you brought that up, actually. Well, thank you very much again for being on with us, Shane. This is your third time. I think since the last time that we visited, you were on tour uh, about the last time? Yeah, well, not on tour, but yeah, I did. I just had a bunch of shows coming up and I ran through that run and thankfully it totally burned me out. <laughs> and uh, I've been taking a couple months off. I did. Uh, I'm doing comedy shows locally, but I'm not going to go uh, out of the Bay Area for a little while. I think I'm, I'm, I need to be settled and uh, take some deep breaths. But yeah, uh, other than that, things are going great. And uh, how's the podcast going? And the podcast is going awesome. We have a 
mailbag episode coming up. So we're doing like we're taking right now we're taking a bunch of questions from listeners and that's been super fun to have those pouring in and we're excited to do that. We're going to do it as a live stream, but it's going great. It's Midnight Facts for Insomniacs. And uh, if you enjoy learning things uh, and, uh, you know, every once in a while we do cover some actually cinematic stuff. So uh, we did the biggest box office bombs recently, which in of all time, which was interesting. So, uh, yeah, check it out. And uh, for anyone looking for your materials, there will be links in the episode description of this show that uh, I think it's shanerogers.net, correct? And uh, you can also find the hyperlink to the podcast so that you can find that as well. Dad, any very, very quick thoughts for the week? No, I'm I, I'm good. I'm, um, I'm hoping that eventually the strikes are resolved here so that we don't lose complete content over the next six to 12 months. Um, Amen. But in the meantime, I'm enjoying going back and rewatching some old films. I've got a whole list of films that I've never seen that I want to watch. I still don't see much of an end in sight, unfortunately, with this one. I know that my prediction has been it won't be resolved till probably at least Christmas. I think you have two large sections of the industry that are diametrically opposed, both facing existential crises. And until such time as one of them is willing to budge from that ledge, or at least doesn't see it as an existential crisis anymore, I just don't know how much progress they're going to make. But I'm open to being wrong. I I periodically will make a comment that sometimes I would love to write a book, and I I have an idea for a book, which is Bob Iger, how to destroy your reputation in three easy steps. Yeah, he's not coming off great. I gotta <laughs> say, he looks like a villain, and you know he he's more of a villain than Gene Hackman was in this. That's for sure. Oh yeah. Well, that it's gonna do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Our Germans are better than their Germans. Next week for our 177th episode, we discuss the U.S. space program biopic. The Right Stuff from 1983, celebrating its 30th birthday this year. Written and directed by Philip Kaufman, co-written by Tom Wolfe, music by Bill Conti, starring Sam Shepard, Scott Glenn, Ed Harris, Dennis Quaid, and Fred Ward. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.